You're listening to WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick, community radio from Goddard College. I listen when I'm naked. Good morning, Tonio. For those of you wondering what's going on down here, this is the Magical Mystery Tour. That place, that show where we dive into the heart of things and explore new ideas and sometimes just fool around and have fun. That's that's us. (laughs) Click and clack of uh, metaphysics. <laughs> I've enjoyed listening. One of the pleasures of coming to the studio with you is I get to listen closely to your intros. 
And I'm getting better understanding your artistry, Tonya, because we talked last time I was here about uh, the difference between telling a story with no background music and blending things. And you've been educating me gently. So what I hear is this thing I'm always so interested in, which is the rhythm of speech, the rhythm of a language. But really one has to say the rhythms, because there's a repertoire of rhythms. And still it seems to me that my friend Rip Keller is right, that each language has its own cluster of rhythms that it uses and that the other rhythms that belong to other languages are not easy to get. Now, people who teach languages tend to focus on the speech sounds one at a time, the difference between sheep and ship, which is very hard for Latinos to understand, and they could easily mispronounce the word sheet, which I will not do on the radio. But that's exactly the sort of thing that adults want to make sure they're not doing, accidentally saying something gross because it's almost the same as something else in your language. But listening to your music and listening to those voices that you blend together and the background, I don't think you can call it background, the accompaniment, you know, it's 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 a band, it's a team of things going on at the same time. One can listen to the background or one can listen to the voice. And so the voice becomes not just the content, which is hilarious, of course, the way you plug them all together but it's also part of the rhythm and i don't know how you do it that you get these cross rhythms going between the voice that's saying it's a dun 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 various rhythms of the english language if this uh am i getting close to the the, your artistry i have no idea <laughs> this is your this is how you how you're viewing it. you're so right you're so right this is how i feel it and i think it's because i'm on because of the things that are on my mind we usually just uh, begin with something and then take it from there shall mm-hmm. i introduce a possible topic um we could um, do you have one well um i'll probably talk about mine anyway but why don't you say what yours is <laughs> and we'll blend them no I, uh, well i i thought maybe you you were inviting a response, but yes, I am always. Oh, okay, um, I I like playing with with music and things and putting them together, and I guess what you're saying about rhythm is right, except that I'm I'm approaching it from the perspective of someone who's who's in, diving into the, into it. So. So the rhythms that you speak of are like the water that I'm swimming in. Very, very interesting. Go on. So I'm playing with things, and I'm just I'm listening as I'm putting things together and editing them and, and trying to make the, the connections, connect different pieces. I'm listening to what sounds right, what feels right, and... If I was to think more deeply about it, I Feel obviously <laughs> rhythm is a is a critical thing. I'm I am looking for for a what feels right, and I'm a very rith, rhythm is a big part is a big thing for me. Music is is very important to me. Um, language is very important. Cadence, the way things flow, it's. As you were talking about clusters of rhythms, there are clusters of all kinds of things. Yes. You could, you could actually, I think you could apply <laughs> the metaphor of rhythm to everything. 
Yes. Everything in nature, in the world. Yes. Because everything, and and cl- cluster of rhythm is a, is an interesting term because I think of I think of it as there's there's rhythms that are inter rhythm rhythming with each other. Yes. All the time. Yes. These dances yes. in and out, weaving in yes. and out of each other in yes. in the world around us. Yes. So um, this is uh, something is happening to me, which happens pretty much every time I come and hang out with you. Which is something that um, one of us more or less takes for granted. The other person says, "Look at it from this point of view," and then vice versa. So what I'm enjoying right now is that what I was getting from listening to your collage is something that for you you don't need technical terms for it you just do it and it's almost something so obvious that you can pretty much take it for granted in a way but basically that you you trust your intuition your artistic intuition and this thing that interested me about the rhythms is because of my the things that are on my mind that intrigue me about uh, why people have Trouble, why monolingual Americans, to be blunt. I wish there was a single slang term for the phrase that I have in mind. People who only speak English. Well, there's a term for it. It's yes. called Americans. <laughs> <laughs> yes and no. Or, that's, or, that's part of the problem. Or as, or as the Spanish-speaking world calls them, the Norte Americanos. <laughs> I know. But there, right there is, a, is the uh, problem that we've touched on in the previous conversations, which is that if we just say Americans, we're pretending that people who do speak more than one language are not really Americans. And that is a very deep political problem. It is a kind of stigmatizing stereotype. Yeah, so I want a term that's neutral and technical. And uh, I haven't found one. I haven't really looked for one. But at any rate, I think, I think that... Um, uh, what's been on my mind is how difficult it is for those of us who are immigrants, and I'm an immigrant twice over, first from Mexico to Australia, which was a big thing when I was six years old. It was a, you know, shaped my life, traumatic in a way, though I never wanted to call it that. Um, and the second time from the Australia to the United States, which looks, you know, from a global point of view, like not such a big deal. But oddly enough, to come from Australia to the United States in the 1960s was a pretty intense experience too. Anyway, nowadays this question about immigrants is, you know, a big topic on so-called public <laughs> discourse. And instead of looking at the difficulty that people who are not immigrants, people who are not immigrants, I'll just call them citizens, but of course, there could be an immigrant citizen. People who are not immigrants, homebodies, have trouble understanding what it's like to be an immigrant, in particular, why it's not necessarily a, a disaster or a catastrophe, but why those of us who are immigrants have something very interesting, a perspective that we can contribute to the life of our community, because we've been in one community and we've been in another. But what I'm talking about right now, in terms of trying to stick to the question about the rhythms of your of your uh, uh, collages, is something that I don't see much talked about, maybe not much at all, and that is, why is it so hard for us who are immigrants to really understand what it feels like to not be an immigrant? I think a person who was born here, crossed the border, had a second life over there, sometimes went back, sometimes did not, 
find it really hard to understand what it's like never to have left home in that sense, you know? And that intrigues me. And so um, it's a big topic, I realize, as soon as I articulate it. But I'm going to stick to this symbolic thing, if that's the right thing, or, or, or um, paradigm of rhythms. I think I'm going to try and refine. I'm going to try this out for size. As I listen to what you put onto your uh, collages, I hear different American voices, and sometimes not only American voices, but come to think of it, they're all varieties of English. And um, I think I'll just give you an example. Right now I'm speaking English with my default rhythm, whatever it is. And people who meet me have said, oh, where are you from? And it took me a long time to understand that they meant, where did someone who looks like you learn to talk English like that? <laughs> or, what's that? how did you get that strange accent? It, it yes, doesn't exactly. quite fit into any of my neat boxes. Exactly. <laughs> I can't place you is what it really means. Yes. And, and, I, that, and I want to, and I have this knee-jerk need to place you. <laughs> well, maybe knee-jerk. I've got this hole in my, in my wall of, of, of holes for peg, and I want to Right. I yes. want to peg you. Yes. I want in, to put you neatly in your place. In one <laughs> hole. In one, yes. And when I try to put you there, it turns out something's left over. Right. So I'm going to twist that one more round, and that is I get to place you. So after decades of this, I would say, uh, where are you from? And simply doing that brought something into the opera for some people. It was, oh, well, I'm from so-and-so, you know. But often it was like, what? You're asking me where I'm from? I'm not from anywhere. I'm from here. <laughs> uh, anyway, in, I still have this... Uh, have you know, ever asked me that? Have I? No, you've never asked me, and so I've never asked you. In Mexico, when I'm in Mexico... Well, I did ask you, because, or, because I remember thinking at first that you were from Argentina... Remember yes. that? So I, Wasn't that over lunch? No, I think that was here. <laughs> well, whatever. It, it here we are. It could have been anywhere. Yes, when I speak Spanish, sometimes people think I'm from Argentina, because the same thing happens to my Spanish. It's basically Mexican Spanish, but it's now, like so many of us who've lived it's in the United States... It's been colored a little. It's been yes. tinted by... Well, it's been uh, Americanized, because when Latinos... And, and Australianized. No, there's no Australian in it. Oh, yes, there is. In my Spanish? No, in your, in your English. No, no, I'm talking about my Spanish. Oh, your Spanish, okay. Uh, when I talk Spanish... I sometimes sound like I'm from Argentina ah. because I have a friend who married a Chileno, but also because Latinos in the United States, we ran into each other in all sorts of situations, and we're all Latinos together. It took me a long time to recover my Mexican identity, and then when I'm soy Mexicano, I come to Boston, it turns out I'm a Hispanic, <laughs> a new identity for me. And then I got to be quite busy, you know, in Hispanic circles, and we were always code-switching back and forth and joking about things, but the thing is, we were many different Spanishes, and some people spoke Spanish better than me, and some didn't speak Spanish as well as I did. And when you, when you say speak better, what do you mean? Those of us who leave our home, home country, in my case at the age of six, never ah. quite speak the language right. uh, exactly the same as people who stayed behind. Now, when I went back to Mexico... Because you didn't... You didn't you didn't learn it as an adult, so your your language is a, is somewhat limited. Is that it? I don't think so. I think it's because as you grow older, you know, in a one community, not only do you learn, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of the little one year olds. I like to post these YouTube's of the one year old who thinks they've learned to speak, 
and they join in the team in the conversation at the dinner table. They go, wow, oh, I'm and then and they have so much to say. Yes, and also people respond. Yes. And so they've got the main point, which is you take turns and you laugh together and, uh, and you make different sounds of a certain kind. And what I find intriguing is they've got the speech sounds of the language. If it's Spanish, it's Spanish speech sounds. If it's English, and they've got the rhythm. But then they sort of, you can see them as they get just a little older realizing, whoops, there's more to it than this. <laughs> Now, as you grow older, you learn more and more uh, to communicate, and depends on who you are and what the community is. Now, if it's a city, you learn to communicate with, as they say, different registers, different sociolects, different varieties of English. You don't talk formal English, you know, when you're out with the guys having a beer, but you don't talk that way when you're uh, having an interview or meeting in a formal situation. What's the relevance of all of this? Well, Not it's much. Fascinating stuff. What's that? All of that's fascinating stuff. And why is it fascinating? Because it, it going back to your your notion of rhythms is that because there are all these rhythms, different rhythms interacting in the world. Thank that you. That's you've, exactly the point. That we're all well, maybe not all of us, but I think those of us who are sensitive to the world around us are are either trying to fit in or we naturally acclimate ourselves to our environment and whatever is in our environment. As you were saying, when you're out having a beer with the guys, you speak in, a, in the vernacular of that social milieu as opposed to when you go to a, and that, and a that, job interview where, where you, you uh, want to impress. Right. And people pick up probably, depends on what I'm talking about, people pick up that if I want to, I can go right to British English because that's exactly you know, the way one you know, ought to talk. <laughs> I'd like to tell two or three of my anecdotes now. I'd Germaine to, to this. Germaine <laughs> to this. That's why I have you here. <laughs> yes. Um, that and many other reasons. I wanted to... <laughs> Uh, well, in the years uh, in the six, in the eighties and the nineties, when I was so active with a bunch of people doing what they called adult literacy, though I did succeed in getting people to call it adult biliteracy, because many of the folks we were teaching were adults who were literate, sometimes not. The problem with what they called ESL classes was how to grade people. I would have in ESL one, I would have a young woman from. The back hills of Haiti. How do you pronounce Haiti yourself? Here, well, I I always hear it as Haiti. I did it the way Americans do yeah. Haiti. Yeah. Um, how do they? How do they? I'm not going there. Let's just keep going. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I'll get lost in another digression. Yes. Yeah, um, but just to get just to picture the scene, I'm I'm teaching English to this group of very interesting immigrants and very interesting people with great stories to tell, and very valiant people who've made it all the way to Boston, but who are being treated as somehow even below the folks who didn't finish high school because there was a, the busing in Boston, and they're also getting their GED or something. They're not learning ESL, and ESL was sort of socially below that. And here am I trying to preach to people that, look, listen to these uh, uh, adult immigrants. They don't need you to organize their classes. There's a woman in my class who organized and delivered adult education in El Salvador. <laughs> uh, 
and this is the, the story, one of the three stories that I have in mind. And, um, and she was sitting next to the young woman from Haiti who, didn't, who spoke only Creole and didn't know how to write it. So the extremes of the uh, educational spectrum, though we can't say anything about intelligence because it's hard to know which of the two was more intelligent. Certainly the woman from El Salvador was very intelligent, but how can you tell how smart someone is, you know, under the other, the other case? But the, and she would bring in... So she couldn't speak English. So she was in ESL 1. But she could not only read it. She did the crossword puzzles and brought one in and said, No puedo adivinar esto. I can't figure out this word here. I look, I'm not good at those. I looked at the, <laughs> at the clue. I have, I have no idea. She brought it in the next day. It turned out the word she needed at that point was beguiled. Now, beguiled is not a word you normally teach in ESL 1, right? So I really wanted to have... I taught in many different... Uh, there, were, there were at least 14 agencies, social service agencies, in Boston teaching uh, ESL to adults in different parts of Boston. Each part was different. I worked in many of them, different places. Um, and one of them was at Oficina Hispana, where uh, it was a really interesting place because each place had its own way of doing things. Here on Mondays and Wednesdays, you were divided into four levels depending on your speaking ability. This was an, an agency run by Hispanics who were bilingual and, with, and as I like to say, uh, Anglos of goodwill who were bilingual too. They, they were fluent in Spanish. I loved that sort of setting because then I, when, when you were just with bilingual people, I mean, you really relax because you, got, you treat the language barrier, as I like to say, as if it was just this volleyball net where you ping pong net where you play ping pong across it. So I had the opportunity on Mondays and Wednesdays of having a group who were at level two or three when it came to, to speaking. It didn't matter how, what level you were at at reading and writing. This group could communicate orally at this level somewhere between beginner and advanced. And I decided that we were not going to write anything. <laughs> it was all going to be oral, Mondays and Wednesdays. And so I started on the first day with something I learned from my friend Rip Keller. He says every language has its characteristic rhythm. And I told them in Spanish, cada idioma tiene su propio ritmo. Then they got this right away. They know that. And uh, they were mainly from the Dominican Republic. That's what their main group was. <laughs> they were a wild bunch of people. Every day was uh, a good reason to have a, a, a fiesta. You know? <laughs> and, and the classroom was not, you know, teacher-student replicating what, what, what's worst about the master-slave relationship between the teacher and the student. No, it was a group of people you know, studying a language together with the help of this teacher. So I said, I'm going to... The rhythm of the language is the hardest thing to, to learn, and people who are quite advanced, and you guys are getting there, will say the right words, but the rhythm will sound odd, and sometimes that makes it hard for people to understand what you're saying. So I'm going to teach you, but nobody teaches you, I'm going to teach you the basic rhythm of American English. Oh, muy bien, muy bien, así, sí, sí. So, here goes, and this is so germane to what I was trying to understand about my understanding of your artistry, which is that each piece of speech has a, is a different sample of, I'm not just going to call it now, American speech, though, of course, there are some other things in there. So I said, 
And they all go, I said, no, 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 no. Eso es el otro ritmo. Eso es el ritmo caribeño. Eso es el ritmo you know, de la salsa, de perengue. Pero los gringos no saben eso. Hablan de eso. Tienen otro, otro ritmo. And they were getting it. And I said, now, uh, I said, some people say a man is made out of mud. So they go, some people, a man is made out of mud. Now, to me, that sounds like you're, you're speaking in a southern Excellent. rhythm. Exactly, exactly. So I, th- as a northerner, I don't quite relate, although in a way, I, it's, not, it's not far. I mean, it's close enough for me, but... This is, this is what makes it so intriguing to me. Of course, it's, it's impertinent to say this is the rhythm of the language. But I was uh, teaching them a rhythm that any native-speaking English, anyone who speaks English as their native language, even if they're in Scotland, recognize this rhythm. Mm-hmm. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A mind that's a weak and a back that's strong. You load six tons and what do you get another day older and deeper in debt St. Peter don't you call me cause I can't go I owe my soul to the company store so it's not it's southern but it's also black and it's and really? it's well don't you think it's that's a blues there, there, toward the end you were I, I, I was blending it in that, that direction, yeah. you know, moving in that direction. But to me, I went back to the dancing metaphor. Yes. Because you, you said the, the, rhythm, the salsa rhythm. Yes. Um, and here in America, it's more of a swing rhythm or ballroom dancing rhythm. It's a slower thing, whereas salsas. I think you've nailed it. That's it. It's much more staccato. Right, right. Yeah. So let's just say, you know, the swing rhythm is, it ain't... It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. And so I think um, the principle behind da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da is, as you say, uh, if you're a northerner, then you say to one, then one says to oneself, oh, that sounds rather southern to me. And if you're a southerner, you might also think, well, what is that? That sounds sort of western to me. And if you're from where... But anyway, it's sort of a generic rhythm that I was trying to get at, right? And it's by the, much slower. It is... There are two things about it. It's slow, but there's a lilt, Tonio. There's a lilt which is absent from Latino music. You can go, Maldito corazón, me alegro que ahora sufras. You can do that, but that's not a lilt. That's not, I'll call it the Irish lilt. You would not find that in Mexico. I don't think you'll find any Mexican music that has anything like that. Actually, you know what? I think mariachi music has does have some of that. It's mariachi is is, is actually a very different rhythm than 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 the more classic Hispanic rhythms, the the more staccato. I would not. 
be able to affirm that that's the case. I would say mariachi music is, again, the generic country-western music of Mexico. But the point I want to highlight, because you're getting down to the minute details here, is if I may use a little technical musician's vocabulary, they can both be in 6-8 time. But in the Irish lilt, which is not just Irish, you know, da there is one basic pulse. And instead of breaking it up into you break it into which you do not do in other cultures because it's not measurable. It's not really to notate it, you would have to say one and a half or one and three quarters, which would be tum ta tum ta tum ta tum ta tum ta tum ta tum, which isn't the lilt. The lilt is more uh, flexible. It's you know the dance. It's a, it's, a, it's really I, I got it when I saw uh, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. <laughs> Remember that movie, Coal Miner's Daughter? She's got the kid on her hip and she's singing it to it, and she's swaying her hip, and that's when I learnt to speak like that. So I'm coming back to my thing about na 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 Now for the mariachis, it is 6-8 but it's a, there are two rhythms at the same time which makes it Mexican. If you don't have both rhythms, it isn't Mexico. For ejemplo, por ejemplo. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, Te domingo a domingo te vengo a ver. Cuando será domingo, cielito lindo para volver. Ay, ay, you're getting it? Ta, ta, ta. Now it's not. De domingo a domingo. That would be very immediately someone who's trying. Mm. It's a subtle point. Yeah. But it is these very subtleties that intrigue me when I listen to your collage because now I can uh, say a bit more about that. But I don't need to. I want to go further with my story because here we are with this group of people who, by the end of lesson one, they're pretty happy because they're recognizing, yeah, there's something about what this guy is telling us. That there's some validity to it because it helps me understand some of the speech sounds I hear around me. And we're not at that point, anywhere near the level of delicate analysis that you and me were looking at, they're just the difference between some people say a man is made out of mud. That's a syncopation. <laughs> Poor man. No, no, no. We, they, they were getting it. So I said, your homework for next, next uh, third Wednesday, we had a... a, a no, no, I, I didn't tell them about that. There, there no, the second class, I brought my boombox in uh, because they all said, Mira... Conocemos las palabras, pero usted habla muy rápido. They say, you talk so fast. And I'd say, yes, because in ESL classes, they always talk too slow. They teach you, I am going to New York on Friday. And then you're out and, you know, and you can't even say to someone, excuse me, you're stepping on my toe. <laughs> because you don't have the rhythm. <laughs> so... On, on, the, on, the, on the Wednesday, I said, you know, I know I talk too fast for you, but you're going to learn real English. We're going to turn this boombox on. It had a little cassette recorder. That was the way we did things in those days. And tape the first 60 seconds of whatever comes on, on the radio. This is so relevant to what you and me are talking about right now. And whatever it is, we're going to study that until you understand it. <laughs> oh, muy bien. <laughs> so we turn the thing on, and what do we hear? 
Old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. He called for large fries and extra large coke, and he called for McBLT. I turned it off right there. I said, what did you hear? Immediately I was thinking, Old King Cole? What, this isn't just grammar. This is like, you know, if you never heard of Old King Cole, how on earth are you going <laughs> to relate to this ad? You know? So I said, what did you hear? They heard extra large fries. Uh, McBLT, you know. Coke. Coke and McBLT, <laughs> right? So we started at the beginning. And what was it? What's it turn out? Old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. I wasn't all that, you know, strict about getting the rhythm, but you see what I'm getting at, right? That's the natural way in which to say those lines. Old King Cole was a merry also. Who can? Who is Old King Cole? Well, you know, you know, he's, uh, was a merry old soul. They were getting all of this, and a merry old soul he was. I said, no, <laughs> was he? <laughs> But who was he? You always thought of his mother. You know, we pulled a lot of juice out of that one. So how did I learn that rhythm? Well, I can I go on with my next story? So I always, on this topic, end up telling my thing as if it's the first time I thought of it. It must sound so much like a taped version. And here goes. I tell, this is when I'm training ESL teachers with, you know, a variety of very well-meaning people. But again, they bring to their work a variety of relationships to language. And there's a big difference between those who have learned a second language and know what it's like to become become bilingual when you're an adult and those who have never done that. And the ones who haven't done that think they're teaching English, whereas the others are really saying, here's how I crossed over, I'll be a guide while you cross over. So as part of the consciousness raising or, or more uh, icebreaking, break, icebreaker, I'll say, I'm living proof there's such a thing as too much ESL because I had to learn English four times over. Now, I may even told that here, but today in the context of what we're talking about, I think, you know, and I'll call this sitting here with you therapy because I get to say these personal private things. I did have to learn English four times over, and it does change the way you think about language. And why did I have to learn it again when I'd already learned it? Because I was an immigrant again in a different place. I was again an outsider, and so no wonder I got good <laughs> at learning how at least to talk the way the natives do so that I, not so I can pass for an insider, but so that I can understand what they're saying and they can understand what I'm saying. So first I had to learn to speak Australian when I was six years old. And although usually what I focus on is the up and down of the voice because you climb your way back up to the top again. And if you do that and do that over and over again, then you're talking Australian. Whereas in correct, no, in, in, in received pronunciation, you start up high and then you go down a little bit lower and then you keep going lower and lower and lower until you reach the end of your sentence. A major point. <laughs> yes. So those are two Englishes that I had to learn. Then I came to the United States, to Berkeley, in the 60s and developed what I thought was a generic American accent and still I'm under that delusion. And then I lived in southern Illinois and I had learned to speak English all over again. And I'm not kidding, I had to do it. I was going all over creation down there, visiting the Mexican migrant workers. And there were about 2,000 of them in this little area. And, uh, and I was sort of, because I was one of the few bilingual people there, I was mediating between them and the folks who lived in Cobden, a thousand people. 
and some often with the growers who owned the property where they were employing, if that's the right verb, these uh, migrant workers to pick the apples and peaches. And I had friends there and made more friends, and um, and they were trying to teach me how to speak Southern Illinois. Now I didn't, I've never been. Further south, it's called the tip of the south. Southern Illinois, for those of us who, for those of you who don't know this, is very much a different thing than Chicago. It's just tip of the south. But the thing about it is it's where the Ohio meets the Mississippi, and that's Cairo. And when slaves reached Cairo, they were in free territory. So Cairo is still to this day a very interesting small black town with an ancient history from, you know, those days. And fugitive slaves used to help raise the crops in southern Illinois. So to get to the point of a story I haven't told you in great detail, it came to me one day that I had to talk to this grower, the farmer, about opening up what they called the camp, the labor camp, a day or two early, because there was this young woman who had just had a baby living in a shack, and the temperature was about 105 degrees, and she had no water. So, do you know how you say... I walked out and took a deep breath and told myself, Tomas, you're going to have to talk Southern Illinois and you've got to do it. So, do you know how do you say in Southern Illinois there's this young woman and she's just had a baby and she hasn't got any water, you have got to open things because she needs help. You say, do you think this weather is ever going to end? They had been teaching me if you say get straight to the point, you're never going to get anywhere. And then after the right amount of time, you say, oh, by the way, I just came by there and there's this woman. But you mustn't speed up. <laughs> so that's one way in which I... That's a story to tell about how I learned what you and I would consider a really almost pure southern twang. And it was also when I was living there for four years that I finally understood how great Mark Twain is. Because when I was growing up in Australia reading Mark Twain, it was all very exotic to me. Even when I was a teenager and this guy Elvis Presley started singing, one day, it was unusual, and it was just radio, one day I heard him being interviewed, and he talked that way even when he was... <laughs> he, he sang the way he talked, and he talked the way he sang. That was a revelation to me. And similarly with Mark Twain in Life on the Mississippi... He writes that way because people spake that way. I heard people say the word spake as the past tense of speak. Uh, so there we are. That's one of my stories about rhythms. Uh, I need help now in bringing this to the next point or the cadence or getting on with the flow. Please, Tonio. <laughs> so, um, so where does it go from here? Well, rhythms. Uh, on the one hand... I started off this conversation thinking that when people think about languages, they tend not to think about rhythms. But then it's not a question of thinking about rhythms. It's I, some of us are more tuned into rhythms and some less. And well, some, some, of us, some people are dancing their way through life in a way. And they, you and me. And they relate to music as being part of their, na their natural rhythm. Exactly. It's sort of like the blood flowing through their veins. Yes, that's right. And then there are some people... You, it's kind of like... A good sense of humor is very much like that. Say more. I don't have one, unfortunately, but maybe if you tell me <laughs> why it's like, perhaps I'll understand and I'll get one. Of course you have one. But there, occasionally you come across... I was using that as a metaphor that, like 
you know, occasionally you come across somebody who who absolutely does not have a sense of humor. They, oh yes. You 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 say something with a little bit of irony, yeah. tongue in cheek. Yep. And and they yes. absolutely do not yep. get it. Yep. It's it's yep. very much it's it directly correlates to the rhythm yes. of language. Yes. And humor yes. is you could what would you call humor as as an affect of language? Um, I think irony is a good term. To, to well, I don't mean in that. Well, irony I mean, in the, I mean the way it affects the rhythm, as in you use terms of like lilt and things like that. Because if you if you don't have a sense of humor and someone in, injects a little irony, it, then they completely miss the point of what you said, even though you're using language in the same language and you're even using the same rhythm. So yes. I guess it doesn't. It isn't really a rhythm. It's it's something quite different. No, I think it could be a rhythm. But I hear what you're saying, and I think the sense of irony. Uh, I'm I'm just not going to nickname it a sense of irony for short. Sense of humor is one sign that you have a sense of irony, and um, I like the concept of irony. It's helped me in various situations. Irony is a sense that there's a doubleness to things, and that what what you're saying could mean something else, or that it could be said in a different way, and things could be different. It's kind of it's very it's very bilingual because you're. You're grasping. You're communicating right. two, two aspects of language at the same time. I think that's it, and I think one can generalize. It's just very bi. It's and very it's a, bi. It's very bi, and very much like with music. Occasionally, you'll you'll run into somebody who's very stiff, and all of a sudden, if there's music, or you're in a, an environment. Where people are dancing or 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 feeling the music, you can you can see people sticking out like a sore thumb who don't have that sense yep. in their bodies, yeah, right. and they just don't they don't hear yes. the rhythms or yes. they yes. the rhythms don't don't speak to them don't speak don't, to them don't spark right. anything there right. Right. so right. that's so to me those are par those are parallel things excellent humor and and. And that that, that uh, rhythm, that sense right, of right, rhythm right. and music, yeah. Oh, let's call it a cross rhythm. Because when I was doing de domingo a domingo, at any moment when you've right, got cross both rhythms going at the right, same time, and this is right. also true of a lot of mm -hmm. Caribbean music, mm -hmm. and of course of jazz and ragtime. Well, jazz can go, <laughs> can, can get quite Free form, yes, and uh, and and I was thinking which you know, which requires a bilingual literacy and the ability to transcend all, all of, of that. It. Yes, and also maybe multi in the case of jazz. Yes. But, but I think you know Dixieland and the origins of jazz in New Orleans. Yeah, um, and uh, someone, one of those famous jazz musicians said, uh, I mean, black, you know. Said, like Louis? Uh, hmm? <laughs> Old Satchmo? Or? Yeah, it wasn't Satchmo. It might come to me. You get older, you don't remember names. Um, You've got to have that Latin twinge, he said. You've got to have that Latin tinge. If it doesn't have that Latin tinge, it doesn't really come to life. And um, late in life, I've started to understand the connection between New Orleans and Tampico. Tampico in Mexico and New Orleans had a lot of trade going back and forth. And Tampico also has this, this interesting kind of vibrancy. But um, let's see, not that if we can stick to a point, but if we can meander down another 
branch of this. Sachet. Sachet around your lip, <laughs> promenade. Uh, we've covered a lot of ground there. Does it matter any more about um, what it's like to be an immigrant and not... I think maybe that's what it comes down to. Yeah, we didn't... We didn't there really are, get there are people who are living in the house that their grandparents lived. Uh... And they see the world a certain way. And they have a kind of wisdom that those of us who are immigrants could never get. A kind of deep-rootedness? But, it's, but to, I, I can't even say what it is because it's so but, hard for me to imagine. But I've read about it in novels. I read about it, you know, in, in but rustic... <laughs> but, but let me ask you a question. You still remember what it was like before coming to this country... Well, maybe not you, because you were only six years old, so you didn't really have much in the way of roots. But let's say somebody who, who has a sense of, of home where back in their past and had roots, had those kind of deep roots. Is, do you think it's possible to channel that feeling, that sense of being at home even in a new environment, when you feel out of place and a foreigner, an immigrant? For me, too. I mean, it would take time. You'd have to settle in to some degree, but I'm, I'm getting the sense that you're saying, that you're implying that immigrants never lose that sense of being an immigrant. I wouldn't... I can refine that. There's something we never lose... I wouldn't say it's this, that, but um, I'll be more able to respond at this level that you're pitching this if I can ask you, have you been an immigrant, Tonya? I lived in southern Spain for about a year. Now, is that a yes, a no, or a somewhere in between? It's uh, somewhere in between. Because at the time, you were young, and like our puppy who spent two days with my brother... You didn't know, you know, that you're going to go back. You might have known in some sense, but in emotionally living in the here and now, which you seem to be very good at, there you were. You got a taste of the immigrant experience. Well, I was totally immersed. You were totally but, immersed. But there was something that you mentioned earlier, how um, you were saying that here in this country, people often are not curious about Immigrants. Whereas, no, I didn't say not curious. They find it very hard to imagine what it's like to be an immigrant. They yes. might be extremely curious for that very reason. Okay, okay, uh, okay. You see what I'm getting at? Yeah, I do. It has a question of the imagination. And can one imagine what one has not experienced? Right. Now, because, like so many of us, whether we're immigrants or not, maybe, but like so many of us immigrants, I ponder this identity from time to time. It's surprising to me that I'm coming up with a rather fresh take on it right now. Um, you have had this experience, which in my worldview means that I'm talking to someone who does have first-hand experience of what it's like to be immersed not only in another language, but certainly in another language, but immersed for a while in a different culture. And that means this person knows something, from not from reading books, but in your body, in your teeth, in your tongue, in your, in your being, 
in your way of relating to people. You know there is another way. Now, I don't know enough about your life story, but I'll just create a character who, at the age of how old were you? Eight and nine. At eight, or it could be at the age of 12, or somewhere in there, spends a year in another culture. I've known a few cases like that. But then they come back to their, quote, own culture. Then something happens to that experience. It's still something they have compared to their neighbor who's never left. Now, for me and for people like us, you don't know whether you're going to go back. So why do I find it hard to imagine the person who has not had that experience? Why, when you're bi, is it so hard to really understand what it's like to be mono? <laughs> I think I've got my terms. I think when I said monolingual, I think I'm talking about bi and mono. I once saw a guy, a Latino, with a T-shirt that said, I'm bicultural, bisexual, and by myself. <laughs> yeah, what it's like to be bi, it's hard to understand what it's like to be mono because you can't help but see those people as unfortunately somewhat limited. <laughs> well, I can totally relate to that in another way. In, in this, in Go the, for it. In, in the way that, like, when you're around someone who, who has kind of a one-track mind, who only yes, yes, one who track thinks, line. Yes, who's yes. very ideologically yes, bound. Yes, yes, whatever, yes. And me, because I am somewhat multicultural in my upbringing, I, even living in this country in Manhattan, I was living in an immigrant neighborhood. Absolutely, absolutely. So I was, and I was the exception in my, being a, a white, blonde kid, I was the exception in my neighborhood. Yes, yes, because, yes, yes. <laughs> yes. So, and... I also think about things and I question things. So any any opinion that I have or any perspective that I have, I'm weighing it with other perspectives. And and I've always I've always been exposed to lots of different kinds of yeah. people from yep. different right. cultures and different right. perspectives. Right. And I have always made a point of trying to get along with everybody. Yeah. No matter what, no matter how radically opposed yes. their perspectives yes. might have been from mine yes. i would i would go underneath yes, would. right those things right. so that i could relate to them right. as a human being and, and enjoy them right so right. when i encounter somebody who is stiff and rigid in terms of the way they see things and they they're incapable at least at that point in their their lives of of seeing levels of the way you can relate to other people and the world around you, that they, they're, they're on, not only are they one track, but they're on one level, and they're mono-mono, <laughs> one-dimensional. One-dimensional. We have you know, a number of metaphors now, one track, one level, one-dimensional. So and I have a hard time with, with people do. like that. You do. Because yeah. I, can't, I can't connect it's really hard yep. to connect with people like that. Yep. And I often find that, why bother? You know, there's, there's nothing to connect there. I mean, I, sometimes I try. Yep. And it's like, yeah, yep. there's, 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 no, there's no fertile soil. It's like concrete yep. or pavement. And, yep. Yeah. So this helped me see something which in a way was so obvious, which is, of course, if, if you grow up in a community, if you are a member of a community where most people are immigrants, that's very different. And we can degrees of it. If many people are immigrants, 
but if like in the case of my brother and me, you're the only two Mexicans in the entire country. We're not talking about Hispanics in Australia. We're not talking about the Spanish-speaking community. You want to look at the Spanish-speaking community, it was my family, my brother and me, desegregated. You know, I mean, that's a very extreme situation. And I noticed that in my work with Mexican migrant workers, I have not... Well, no, I did do a lot of stuff with immigrants... Uh, in the Boston urban area. But I also, you know, here in Vermont, I've visited all these farms up here in the northern uh, uh, condados, counties. Extreme situation where there's one worker living in a trailer and all he does is milk the cows. He never sees anybody. That's an extreme situation. Vermont is aware now that there is something going on here about... But it hasn't had the experience. It's very new for Vermont. It, if you, When I was in Arizona, it, it's been going on for three, 400 years, or well, thousands of years. So what's the relevance of all of this? Would you help me get back to what you just said? Oh, yes, mono, bi... So monodimensional, one-dimensional, two-dimensional, and then stereoscopic, you know? Stereoscopic is not a bad... Or stereophonic, you can hear out of two ears, you know. And so, um, at the risk of becoming a bore on this topic, the only way you can communicate with people who are mono, I think this is logically necessary, is to be mono yourself. Exactly. And so, I have passed, at least in my imagination, for a while... For one of us. That's to say, you know, I think on some of my resumes there's community organizer. Well, I have helped to organize various communities and more than one. And one thing you know as a community organizer, don't get started if you don't love the community. Because if you don't love the community, if you're just coming in because you're a professional organizer, you're going to organize this community and go off and organize another one, then as soon as it gets really intense and painful, you're going to leave. But if you love the community, you're not going to leave. With that in mind, you know, I mean, shall I name the places? Did I ever pass for Australian? I claim no, but many people who knew me in Australia would say, of course you did. You know, give me a break. (laughs) We didn't even know you weren't Australian. Well, kids adapt quickly. Like, I adapted in Spain very quickly. In fact, when I came back here, I spoke the version of Spanish they spoke in that town, which was a, a very um, low-grade, bastardized kind of version of Spanish. And people were like, where did you learn to speak Spanish? Like, ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Most of us who speak Spanish speak a low-grade, bastardized version of Spanish. And the only reason we don't say that we speak a low-grade, bastardized version of English is because English doesn't have a royal academy that <laughs> wags its fingers. But poor Mexico... You mean here in, in America? No, there is no royal academy of English. English, well, then, English has never had an institutionalized organ that uh, a, a Supreme Court... I, I won't split A hairs. Supreme Court that, that decides whether or not you're uh, speaking the language. Mm-hmm. And it makes a big difference to the history of Spain and Spanish culture that they have a Real Academia and this mm-hmm. attitude that there is a pure Spanish and that many you know, of these mestizos speak an impure Spanish is not a minor aspect of people's attitude to Spanish. Most I don't think... We didn't... They, they didn't speak a mestizo kind of Spanish. No, in your they case just, it wasn't. In your case it wasn't. It was, it was kind of a dirty Spanish. It was Andalus. 
it was it was it was a, a language with an ancient history of its own and a great dignity and people singing it and it's a wonderful language. It was only that from time to time it did not honor the hegemony, the sovereignty of the Royal Academy of Spain. And the reason I'm hanging, I'm, I'm pushing this, is because when somebody is an English-speaking person who really and truly wants to speak Spanish, and I've had so many friends or people who knew, I want to learn Spanish, they don't realize how hard it is, you know, and that you're only going to do it if you absolutely have to, you know. And they especially don't realize they're going to have to let go of something. So, not all of them, but, you know, but the ones who have this trouble. So, the moment I want to just flag for a moment is when they say something in Spanish to someone who speaks Spanish, and instead of communicating, they worry whether they've said it correctly. It is so natural, it's what's drummed into you in school, no, that's not correct. But to this person who's hearing it, they don't give a damn whether you're saying it correctly. They just wonder whether you're communicating. So if you say, amigo, that's okay, everyone knows that's all right. Como estar usted? Well, that's not correct. But if you mean it, the person will respond. If you're just practicing your Spanish and performing something. And so this question of the correctness of Spanish is something that has to be uh, dealt with and dissolved before people can relax about learning Spanish. Because you're not going to talk to someone who speaks that way. I've only met maybe three people in my life who talk the way the Real Academia de España says you have to talk. It is so formal and so august and so castizo so pure that it doesn't allow Americanisms, and I don't mean Englishisms, I mean words like cacahuate for, for, uh, for uh, peanuts, which is an Aztec word which everybody knows. And when I was in Sevilla, within five seconds of me opening my mouth, people said, oh, tú eres mexicano. They said it in Sevillan. You know? Right, I was, I was going to ask, in, in, in the Latino world, I bet people can place languages very quickly. Immediately. Oh, yeah. Especially if they're in places. Very much like in, in, in this country, we can pretty yeah. much place where, exactly, where somebody's Exactly, exactly. I was in Cuba for two weeks with my aijado. I really wanted to see what it was like to be, you know, in Spanish-speaking... You know, anyway, I was in Cuba. We got off the plane, and there was this bus you took into from the airport to the thing, and the guy immediately said, you know, I knew that I was Mexican. I felt very validated. Uh, it could be that I was, because I was wearing my guayavera. I took guayaveras uh, because I thought everyone in Cuba wears them. Well, they might have 50 years ago, but not anymore. Only, just like in Mexico, only the waiters and the musicians of a certain sort wear them. But it was more that I used words like platicar. Platicar just means to chat. Queremos platicar. Or I don't even know how they played it. It could have been the rhythm. It could have been all sorts of things. But anyway, there we are. That has to do with correctness in the Spanish. Uh, I don't know why that even came up. So, um, let's see. Where are we going? Do we, do we well, have, let me just... Are we in the middle of something or are we sort of wrapping something up? I, I think we're know, wrapping something up. Perhaps, but let me just say that this is WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Goddard College Community Radio, the Magical Mystery Tour with... Tomás Calmar es mi guest. Usted está escuchando a la estación de WGDR en el, estado, en, en el pueblo de, uh, de Plainfield. Es parte del Goddard College donde yo trabajaba antes. Y uh, eso se llama Magical Mystery Tour, o sea, la mágica de la misteriosa, el viaje al centro de no sé qué. <laughs> ok, we become by. <laughs> I'm going to, for my purposes, I'm going to uh, wrap up cadence-wise. 
this turned out to me for me to be about the tension and the contrast and the dynamics of being bi where others are mo- mono and being mono where others are bi and I think it applies to many situations and the gist of it is if you can pass for mono at least for a while you can get something of the experience of what it's like not to be bi but obviously as soon as you put it that way only somewhat because all the time you're just if they all genuflect in front of a certain god and you say okay I want to pass I will genuflect in front of this god you do but they know that you don't mean it this is why I was never given a real well, well I think you can I think you can you can learn to fake it but then when you become really good at faking something you run the risk of losing yourself I ran that risk and I tried to fake it I'm talking about situations like in Boston where I was a candidate for a position where I would have had power and authority and they definitely wanted a Latino uh but they could tell that I was too irreverent, Tonio. They could tell that, yes, I did genuflect and say the right words and so on. But there must have been a twinkle in my eye or something that showed a sense of irony. Like, I'll be that way. I, I, I believe this is... You were too old, I think is what it is. Too what? Too old, but more I wasn't than... old. I was young back then. But, well, <laughs> age, no, no. age is very relative. Plus... Yeah, there, there, there is something. No, no, about I'm talking you. about. I'm talking about if you want to pass for a certain cult, if right. you want to know what right. it's like to be mono, right. where people do not permit, where yeah. in fact is a taboo yeah. to be bi, right. where to be bi is to commit a terrible sin, is to be impure, not only to, to be damned for hell, exactly, and which, uh, which would damn you to hell. Yes. Yes. And and you want to pass nevertheless, then it becomes a little more dangerous, right? Especially if they will kill you if they know that you're <laughs> pretending to be one of them. Yes. Where are we going with this? I think, are we, should, are we taking any break or should we just trottle on? Let's keep going because time will, 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 will have run its course before we even know it. Yes, but I'm getting the hang of these one and a half hour shows. I think I'm going to uh, request a break in a couple of minutes. Really? Yeah, just a quick uh, bathroom break, we'll call it. Really? Uh, You'll, you'll survive. Because I could play another little piece, if you're interested. And I want to just continue. This is the code or the end of what we were talking about, mono, bi, and so on. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, to bring it back to the thing that I, the way I framed it, why is it hard to imagine what it's like to be one of them? Mm-hmm. I think this is really what I was sort of massaging in my own my own uh, relationship to the United States. Right now, people who are not in favor of tearing children away from parents at the border are called liberals. (laughs) (laughs) And people who are in favor of that are not called liberals. And it's extremely hard to imagine what it's like to be someone who thinks it's a good thing to do. And so there's a good deal of discourse that says we're a nation of immigrants you know you have to have compassion jesus says be kind to the stranger they're all attempts to say these are immigrants we are nice to immigrants we have to be because they bring something to our cult we 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 have to be something for them so so there's this discourse where we who are not immigrants have to be nice to them who are immigrants or that we who who may th- think of ourselves as not being immigrants not too long ago were also immigrants exactly and for th- and that our parents or our forth parent forebears 
were immigrants, and therefore, right. not only should we be compassionate, but we should see ourselves in them or see them right. in exactly. us. Exactly. And so, to go over to the other side, if I'm now a member of a mono community that thinks it's a good thing to, t- to, to punish parents for bringing their children this far and take them away and put them in, you know, whatever, all that stuff, how can I think such a thing if I myself have children? And I just can construct to try and train my mind that for those of us who feel this way, we are not them. We are not immigrants. Our ancestors were not immigrants. Yours might have been, and that's why I don't like you. You shouldn't be given the floor because your ancestors were immigrants. So shut up, you stupid liberals. We are the ones who know what's what. We are the ones who are pure. I mean, I'm not saying that people think this way consciously, but the posture, the what makes it, what prevents them from being able to, able to say we and include in the we anyone who has got tainted with immigrants. <laughs> I think that's as far as I need to go because, in a way, it's all so obvious that, you know, why did I need to... But anyway, I hope that the journey to get to this painful thing helps. I don't know where I am with this. I just... It's, I think it's a, it's a critical issue in, our, in this nation. It, it tells me that it is totally pointless to tell someone of the mono group you should have more compassion, you should... Right. This, you should right. Because you're not even talking to them. Right. You may as well just go, they're going to go on because you're not talking to them. And if you want to communicate with them, which many people do not, that's part of the problem. So it helps me reframe something as not just us versus them being them are the immigrants, but rather bi versus mono, mono versus bi. Thank you. I'm, I'm very grateful to have this hook to take away with me so that tomorrow when I think, what was that about? I'll tell you, yeah, bi and mono. I have written pages of in my journals about this kind of thing, but uh, this was a fresh take on it. I need to take a bathroom break for, for a minute here. Okay. So let's see what can we get. What can we do for you? And here they are, the Android Sisters, with "Come the Christian Inquisition." Got your number. We know who you are. You shall. You healers. You psychics. You witches. You new age dupes of the devil. You'll all quake when you feel the fist of the Almighty come the Christian Inquisition. You astrologers, clairvoyants, channelers, crystal gazers. You, you new agers. You know who you are. We know who you are. Our computers know exactly where you are. Better say your prayers. Come the Christian Inquisition. Now your devil's work. We have our ways. We know how to stretch, stretch and, and dunk and, and burn and draw and quarter and flail you alive. You get the point. You will. Come the Christian Inquisition. You shamans, you psychics, you healers, you witches. Fun days are over. Your days are numbered. The, the church, church returns. Repent, repent. It's not too late. Or is it? Come the Christian Inquisition. You tarot readers, you healers, you, you pyramid sitters, you astrologers, you clairvoyants, you channelers, you, 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 you new age dupes of the devil. We'll crush your cults. There is but one way, and that way will be clear. Oh, so clear. Come the Christian Inquisition. 
We've stacked the courts. We've stacked the Congress. We have money. We, we have power. We have fear. There is nothing to stop us now. Bring on the instruments of persuasion. Open wide the doors. It's time once more to welcome the Christian Inquisition. Here we are. Back again. So that was a, a little taste of mono. Yes. Yes and no. The content was mono. The frame was sophisticated. Yes. Yeah. Plenty of irony. It's a very deep issue. Because partly, you know, this thing about roots, there was an earlier part in the conversation when you took it for granted that the first six years of your life is not, you're not really have any roots yet. Now, that may be, and I talk about deep roots, when I try to imagine, as I say, someone who's living in the house that their grandparents lived, let alone someone who really believes they know their, their entire ancestry back a few generations. I rely on... Um, Metaphors like deep roots and novels, and I mean, you know, one gets the figures of folklore to me. These, and it's the folk community that has time immemorial on such and such a day they've danced this dance and so on. You know, all of that. It's a romantic thing. That's why it's not easy for me to uh, picture it in reality. Anyway, enough on that subject. But the roots thing, in my case, such as it is. My Mexican roots were laid down in the first six years of my life. And uh, though that doesn't seem like very long to people who haven't experienced what I've experienced, there can be no doubt that the rest of my life was shaped by those first six years, in my case. And I actually met somebody, Bertrand Rivas, who also came to the United States, well, who was also six years old when he left Mexico. And he was a, a dean at Cal State University, Monterey Bay, where there were a lot of us when it opened. And we really understood each other so well. We swapped, you know, stories about what it's like and what life is like. And I felt, of course, in his case, he was part of a Latino community when he got to the United States. But anyway, uh, to me, those are deep roots. And that's as deep as my roots go. And so this metaphor of roots is very relevant to trying to understand immigrants and non-immigrants. Immigrants, by definition, right, have left their roots behind them, are not rooted where they now are. In order to become rooted, they have to own a house, buy a cow, milk the cow, have children, how long does it take before you have roots in this other culture? I used to think when I was fascinated with Indian culture, Indian music, the richness of the Indian music, that you couldn't tell, you couldn't really understand what it's like to be Hindu if your grandparents were not Hindu. Right. How many generations does it take to have that identity? You know, And this also, flipping around a little, has to do with indigenous languages. There are indigenous languages in Mexico. There's hundreds of them. And as we know, some of them are just spoken by a hundred people. The two that I've had the most contact with is Purepecha. 
This is the language of the Tarascans. It's an ancient Mexican language, and it is not endangered in the normal sense of the word. There are hundreds of thousands of people from this region called Cheran, Michoacan, and many of them are in the United States speak this Tarascan language. I knew how to say, Are you hungry? I've learned to say a few things, right? When you speak an indigenous language, the people who speak it, you know, as their only as their first language, crack up, because only people who are in that tradition have any reason to speak it. You know, so the fact that you're speaking it, of course, you're never going to pass for one, right? And you get a lot of credit for trying, but it must be very, very amusing to them that somebody would even try. And so, people who are interested in languages, do you, when you hear? When you hear that such and such is an endangered language or that in the next 20 years, 40 more languages are going to go extinct or something, do you weep? <laughs> I don't because I don't know how to relate to that. I feel that I've never confessed in public that I don't weep about that. The river language is like the Mississippi or Big River. Over here, for a while, there's an eddy or a little sides river. Or, you know, there's a whirlpool for a while, and then it goes away. And, I mean, how many languages that were spoken in the last million years that leave no trace behind them, you know? But you're meant to feel that they're like endangered species and that a whole way of life is going extinct. I um, do like the story about... I was very interested in this philologist Swadesh. He was famous in the 30s. He was famous because he knew so many indigenous languages. Apparently, he could actually even communicate them, but he was very good at phonemics. He could go into a place and uh, get the people speaking the language, and in six weeks, he had it down, he had it transcribed and analyzed. It wasn't, the story is not told about Swedish, but I'm sure it could have been. It's told about some anthropologist who heard that there were two people left in Florida, the last two speakers of this language. Some language that was about, you know, when they died. By the time he got there, they had died. Fortunately, they had a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a pretty good joke. A pretty good joke. <laughs> so have you wrapped, wrapped that up to your yes. satisfaction? You have. So... We still have 15 minutes. Oh, well, what do we do for the last 15 minutes? Want to uh, play a game of go? <laughs> <laughs> that gives us just about enough time. <laughs> yeah. When you're playing a game, let's say you're playing chess. And, uh, and I put my chess piece not on one square or the other, but right where four squares meet. Ah, at that point, the person I'm playing with says, you're not playing chess. Or we'll say, what are you doing? Well, basically, the point is, as soon as you do that, you obviously are not playing chess. You're doing something else. You're pretending to play chess, but you're not playing chess. You don't mean those moves, because you can't mean a move if it ends up there. It doesn't count. So here I've got my, what actually is probably one of my favorite models for the virtues of being mono. When a bunch of people decide we're going to play a game of volleyball, we all agree that we're going to play the game of volleyball. Mm -hmm. I'm the opposite of an athlete, but I'm very proud of having once had a uh, sports injury uh, 
We were playing volleyball in Cummington at the Cummington School of the Arts. The sun was setting. I was on one side of the group. The other artists and musicians were on the other. We were all artists and musicians and so on. And I leaped up and saved my team by slamming the ball down and I landed on my big toe and broke my toe. Oh, man. I walked around with that broken toe for a long time as my sports injury. One thing I learned about enjoying volleyball, and this is probably germane to what we're talking about, is that you can have a lot of fun if nobody's keeping score, and we probably were not keeping score. But if people want to keep score, it can also be a lot of fun. What is no fun is if some people want to keep score and others don't. There is a nice example of what it means to go by. You cannot play that game if you can't be mono. You can't do both. You can't both keep score and not keeping score, because some people will be mad at you when you... (laughs) You know, well, you can't be attached to one or the other or both. I mean, if some people are keeping score and you're not interested, you don't have to keep score yourself. So well, in that yeah, way, you could do that. Yeah, but and then, and, and then it turns out to be a game in which somebody won and somebody lost. Because at the end of the game, you know who won. Whereas when you don't keep score, nobody won. And that's all I'm really saying, you yeah. know? That's mm-hmm. all I'm really... But there's something, I mean, as a metaphor, that's not bad. Mm-hmm. That's not bad. There's some people who want to know who won and other people who don't care who won. Right. Even if even if they're not particularly competitive. Yeah. They just want to know... They want to gauge themselves, I guess. Well, I have this book called The Well-Played Game. It's a wonderful book. I much recommend it to any of you guys out there listening, any of you folks out there. The Well-Played Game is really captures what it's like... When you're playing a game, and it gets a bit boring because everyone's just playing by the rules, and so you make it a little more tricky and so on. So in a well-played game, everyone's having a good time, and it certainly is possible for everybody to keep score, not because they're competitive in the pejorative sense, but because being competitive makes it a better game. Some people are totally against competition under all circumstances. But if it's a game, you don't have to play. Now, if you have to play, then it's not a game. If the teacher says, you have to play this game or else you will be punished, I don't think it's going to be much fun, except for certain types. (laughs) It's not... Yeah, right. Rules of the game. Rules and patterns of behavior. I mean... uh, Musicians are playing a 12-bar blues, right? Well, if you're all going to jam together, it may as well be everybody jamming a 12-bar blues. And this is what I mean about jazz taking off. There comes a point where you don't stick to the 12-bar blues and then true jazz, which I never managed to get the kind of pleasure out of listening to good jazz that people whom I admire and respect seem to get. I don't seem to get it. When you say good jazz, what does that mean? Miles Davis, uh, Coltrane... uh, the famous great Thelonious Monk, whatever. You know, I know some names. But the, the ones who are treading on the edge. What's that? The ones who are treading on the edge. I don't know where they're treading. I don't know where the edge is, but I believe you. <laughs> well, they're treading on your edge, or maybe they're over your edge if you can't relate to it, if you, can't, if you don't get it. I don't know how to appreciate it. If I hear uh, a folk musician, I can tell right away whether I think they're any good. If I hear a classical musician, I think I know, you know, or a composer. And that's what I mean by on the edge or or over the edge. It's past... Uh, Are you saying that the people I named are uh, avant-garde or something? Well, what what I'm trying to say is that you have a range within which you have a feel for the music. Yes. And these people like Miles Davis and John Coltrane 
they are playing outside of your range, so you don't know how to gauge it. It's kind of like in a game where there's no competition and nobody's keeping score. In a way, you don't necessarily know how to gauge the level of your performance. Um, I'm sure you're right. I mean, to me, it's not that they're I wouldn't out of, be so sure. But. It's, not, it's, not, it's not so much that they're out of my range. They're out, they're out of my planet. They're on another planet. and, and uh, that's, that's basically my point. And you help me see... Another that, world. You help me see how, to what extent, my enjoyment of folk music, certain kinds of popular music, popular culture, certain kinds, and classical music... How much it depends on whether there is still a connection to folk music. Of course, if it's a twelve-bar blues, there's a connection, and if it's uh, and if it's Dixieland, early, you know, Louis Armstrong and the Hot Five, I get pleasure out of those because that could be folk music. And my friend Rip and I, we we find folk music in anything by Bach. I can I can show you. Take me any piece by Bach or Beethoven for that matter, and I'll show you some folk roots there, where the tune, the melody, the rhythm is a is a dance or is a a lullaby or something, or rooted in Alpine yodeling. But in the case of jazz, it's so urbane and modern and sophisticated that I think modern. Yeah, maybe. it's 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 too. I because cl- modern classical music has that as well. Oh, God, yes. I mean, no hope for me there. But, <laughs> but take, for example, you know, ragas, Indian ragas. I did get to the point where I was enjoying it, and I've always yearned to be much more... I mean, if I could live my life over, if I could, I would have loved to just, you know, get into that and play it. Unfortunately, now on YouTube, you can get Carnatic music. You can get wonderful videos, five minutes, ten minutes of some elegant old lady teaching a class where all these people from age 10 to 50 are sitting in on this sitting on the ground, and she goes, Sari ga ga di sa, and they go, Sari ga ga di sa, ga ma ga ma pa pa, and, and you just echo her, I just sit there in the kitchen table doing it, you know, but it's a bit late, it's a bit late. Anyway, I mention that because there too, there's a good deal of improvisation that you have to appreciate, and you can't really appreciate it if you don't get the sense of irony, the illusions, illusions. The sense of irony comes up where they start some rhythm that they're going to do three times, and you're wondering, are they going to land on the beat? Sum is the beat. And although the piece has 17 beats, they start just at the right moment so that by the time they get to the third repetition, boom, it lands on the sum. But that's because they, they're living their music, and not only are they living their music, they've been living their music for generations. Yes. It's steeped in their bones. Yes, yes, and they've mastered the technique. It's mm. it's very much the, like the way we talk and use language that well, we've been using all me, our lives. It's the way you and me talk and use language, though I find that in conversing with you, I'm the one who keeps yearning to get some sort of pattern that ends on the sum, so I can say, oh good, now this piece has come to closure. And of course you can start all over again. And I keep... <laughs> I keep, you keep o- opening, opening the door. Yes, you do jazz. <laughs> or a new door. You're more jazzy than me. I'm a little... Well, no, I just have a big mouth. No, I think there's a jazz element in the way you... Uh, because right from the start, you and me... I used to make musical metaphors about the way you and me you know, conduct and compose these. We're jamming. I used to say we're yes. jamming. And I jam with my, you know... Uh, <laughs> I'm Sancho Panza and you're Don Quixote. I, I, you know what I think part of it is? You have more of an academic background where you were, you felt compelled to complete something. You had something that you were working on, and therefore, there were there was 
even if even if it wasn't that important for you to complete something, you you have a sense of knowing where where the perspective end is. Whereas I don't really have any of that. Uh, I told you, I mean, I think that the, what most people would call that is OCD. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, that I have to have closure. But I don't feel that, that, that in this case we're on the right track. I think what it is for me is that I enjoy singing a song. And I've talked to you about this. I once talked about people don't sing songs. And I, this is too late for today's session, but we could do it another session. I mean, it's a long time since I met someone outside Mexico who sings, who for pleasure, starts a song sings it all the way through all the stanzas and ends the song. And when you sing the whole song, especially if somebody else knows the song and the two of you will sing it together, it ends with a cadence. Mm -hmm. And it comes to closure. And that's what the Gestalt psychologists, especially Fritz Perl and Paul Goodman, and Gestalt psychology, which was a big thing and should still be around, is that we all have a desire for closure on a Gestalt, but what counts as a Gestalt might vary from, you know, situation to situation. So, although to some extent I certainly have OCD in the sense that you're talking about, there is the other aspect of it, which is this musical desire to finish the song. Now, that's a polite way of putting the same thing, but it's got at least a little more dignity. <laughs> Whereas I, I may be in the middle of something, and all of a sudden I see another possibility, and I have no compunction about making a beeline in that direction. OCD stands for obsessive compulsion disorder, is that it? Obsessive compulsive disorder, yeah. Compulsive disorder? Yeah. I would venture a diagnosis of Tonio as someone who, when he sees closure coming, steps into action to make sure it doesn't come. No, 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 I'm not that way at all. I'm not allergic to closure. (laughs) I think you are. (laughs) I, what I have, I have Swiss cheese mind and Nat Brain Syndrome so that I'm easily distracted. What was the other one, Syndrome? Nat, nat brain. What's nat? Oh, for, for GNAT? Yes. Are these Buddhist terms or something? No. <laughs> these are my, my bastard. Oh, oh, oh yes, so they are Buddhist terms. <laughs> and Swiss cheese mind with, sh- you know, shoots and ladders where, where I'll have an idea and, wh- and all of a sudden, whoosh, where it's gone. What happened to that? So I, I think this is fun because we are both saying the same thing in different ways. And I'm aware, too, that, you know, time goes by. There is a clock that when we're here chatting. But I, would, I love coming to ends and completing things when I do. But often I don't get there. It just doesn't always What's happen. What's an example of completing something? One of your collages, for example, or editing one of our shows? And well, for example, it into an hour? for example, my collages, I'm continually working on them and, and tweaking them and changing them. This confirms what I say about you, yeah. You don't say this is done, it's over. No, I, sometimes I do. You sometimes do. I think that, but then I realize, no, it's not. That's what I'm I, saying. Shall I, <laughs> shall I play one? Whatever you like. We've just, well, you we don't have time anymore. You're the MC, yes. We don't really have time, unfortunately. Well, let's just blather. We've got time, time has, for something. Time, as usual, time has flown the coop. Shall I sing a song just as a way of saying farewell? Ya me voy para otras tierras Y te juro que no vuelvo a tener amores en la capital Ya me voy atormentado Llevo el pecho destrozado por la amarga pena de mi decepción. 
Yo ya me voy Nada gano con quererte Me conformo con mi suerte Yo ya me voy Como el pájaro perdido Que se aleja malherido Yo ya me voy Quédate en mi corazón Pum, 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 pum Ahí te quedas consentida Disfrutando de la vida, reina de las flores y mi corazón. ¿Qué de hacer si así es mi suerte? Nada gano con quererte porque al fin y al cabo tú me pagas mal. Yo ya me voy, nada gano con quererte, me conformo con mi suerte, yo ya me voy. Como el pájaro perdido que se aleja malherido, yo ya me voy. Quédate en mi corazón, tum, 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 tum. A complete gestalt. You made it. <laughs> yes, I made it on time with a gestalt. And that is the song of the immigrant. Well, thank you. Also, a, a quick question for you. A quick answer we have coming. A, we have a few seconds left. Um, are these songs that you remember from your childhood? Yes, that's, a, that's, that's why I sang it. So, so I was three years old when I fell in love with that song. Really? Yep. Okay. And I've sung it my whole life, and it means a lot to me. Ah. There's a long story about that song, and I wouldn't be at all mind doing it. And next time we have a show, talk about three or four such songs and tell you the stories. Because that was not collage. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you again, Tomas, for, for joining us. Tomas Kalmar. Thank you, Tony Epstein, for having me. And I much look forward to our next time. Yes, me too. And this has been the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hartwick. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, have a wonderful week. I can't believe I ended with that song. Oh, it's always therapeutic coming. That was closure. <laughs> that was a closure on a gestalt to end with the song like that.